0: and they uh, fear, and it was a miserable, miserable experience Till they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord then spoke through a prophet and said, well, you need to face the facts of why you are where you are. And you're there, and he sent a prophet to tell them what God had said and God had done, and then he says from the Lord, you've not obeyed my voice. It's that simple. Don't try to make this difficult. There are people that overthink and try to make everything so hard and difficult. This is very simple. Their life is in a mess. Why isn't it a mess? Because they wouldn't obey God. (laughs) What do we expect? And so there they are. And so God heard their cry, though. The merciful God heard their cry and spoke to what some people would call a hayseed, a farm boy. And uh, in these very incredible circumstances that we talked about yesterday by the name of Gideon and then showed Gideon how he is going to use him to liberate them from this inferior nation, though they would be greatly outnumbered now because of their bad, uh, their weakness and their bad spiritual condition. And so he's going to use Gideon. And so Gideon came out of nowhere. Uh, not from God's standpoint, but from man's standpoint. He came out of nowhere. And God put His hand upon him and chose him and understood the frailty and the weakness of Gideon that can be found in all of us. And God gave him assurance. And He gave him a a sign that this is God. This is God saying, this is my purpose. You're my man. I'm going to help you. Gave him a second sign. Gave him a third sign. And so it's really an incredible uh, way that God gave him the assurance that he needed to do the work that he did. So we kind of jumped out of the chronological order of the story last night to talk about all three of those signs. So tonight we're going to begin in verse number uh, 25, chapter 6 and verse number 25. So God has assured him, told him to fear not, verse 25. And it came to pass the same night... The same night that he had been shown that it is the Lord, by offering an offering to the Lord, the Lord showing his presence by the fire, uh, when he put his rod upon it, upon that rock, that rock is significant we're going to see tonight. And so he gave him that assurance. It came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto him, take thy father's young bullock And then another one, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took Ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's household, Gideon did, and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day. Why would he fear his father's household? Because his father is the one that had the idol to Baal on his property along with the grove. And so he feared his father's household, and he didn't do it by day, but he did it by night under cover of darkness. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down. Somebody say amen right there. And the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, The the son of Joash hath done this thing. Then came the men of the city and said unto Joash, Bring out thy son that he may die, (laughs) because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death, whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, said the man who had the false god on his property, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called his name Jeroboam. Uh, That's what the name he gave to Gideon. It means to contend with Baal, which definitely Gideon did. Therefore on that day called him Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. Father, we are grateful again tonight for the joy and the privilege of turning aside to give attention to the Word. And uh, on this Monday night, I want to say thank you that there are people yet that deem it right and good to turn aside from a normal schedule perhaps or from an off evening to come and give attention to the Word. All of these folks could have been somewhere else doing something else, but like Jesus explained to Martha that Mary hath chosen that good part which cannot be taken away when she sat there to listen at the feet of Jesus. And so God, we pray that you would reward the folks that have uh, come tonight that they might hear from you. I want to do my best uh, to preach the Word and to rightly divide the Word, but I recognize, O God, that without the unction and the working of your Holy Spirit, this service and this meeting will come to naught. But with your help, your guidance, and the working of your Holy Spirit, it can be very effectual. It can make a difference in the individual lives and in the life of this, your church. So we appeal to you, I do, God. I appeal to you asking that you would work in a wonderful way and make this a meaningful, profitable, helpful, uh, yes, in some cases and maybe in many, I do not know, a life-changing event. And so we thank you for your goodness and for your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. Having been under oppression, probably worse than we're even able to describe or explain, having been under this oppression for seven years, they have now begun what I call the path to freedom. They wanted to be liberated from the oppression of the Midianites, the Amalekites that were uh, that were in partnership with them, plus some other people groups that we mentioned called some of the children of the East, or the people of the East. And so they've been under this heavy oppression for seven years. Famine and fear is the way you would describe uh, that particular time, because they were being plundered at every turn. But when they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard them, then we began again what I call the path to freedom and they are on this path. So we found out that in order to uh, continue on this path to freedom, uh, they had to first of all face the facts. They had to face the fact that they lost the freedom by disobedience. That's very clear as you read the Word of God. Secondly, they had to admit to their dependence upon God. They, They had to come to the place like Gideon did. Like Gideon came to the place where he just acknowledged to God, I'm frail, I'm weak, I can't I can't do this. They were totally unable to liberate themselves. If they were able to liberate themselves, then the oppression wouldn't have gone for seven years. But they realized we're totally helpless in this. And so in, in order to experience the freedom that they were supposed to have, then they had to come to this place with a sense of helplessness. Now Gideon got there, We read about that last night, but you can tell by the reading tonight, the people aren't there yet. So there's more work that has to be done, not just facing the fact of their disobedience, not just facing the fact of their helplessness, and now they have to deal with the action that God calls upon them to do. You know, it's an interesting thing that no matter how much we cast ourselves independence upon God, he still expects us to take action in relation to how he deals with us or speaks to us. We, We are never without the responsibility to make the right decisions and to make the right choices. I've just given it all to God. I've given everything to God. That's where every one of us ought to be. But it doesn't mean that you are free of responsibility now to take action. That's always the case in all the accounts of the Bible, and certainly in this one, there is action that needs to be taken. And we see what it is, <clears throat> if they're going to actually be free, then they have to take the action that God calls upon them to take in this particular account. And so let's start in verse number 25, and uh, God says to get you now, uh, I want you to take uh, an oxen, get an oxen of your father's. And uh, then I want you to take a second oxen, a bullock. I want you to do that. And what are we going to do? Well, what they're going to do is tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the groves. Now, I love the account here, uh, how it describes how that Gideon went into action that very night. I mean, he, he didn't delay Uh, The very night that God spoke to him and that fire came out of the end of his rod and the rock and consumed the kid goat that was there and the and the uh, broth and the bread that was there just consumed it just like that. And that very night, he didn't have a chance to mull on this for a few days. That very night, God put him into action. And so he went and got an oxen from his father. Again, I don't want to wear it out, but he owned the property where the thing was. So he had to be a party to the the, uh, idolatrous practice of the worship to Baal. And so he has him get the ox and they are going to pull down with one ox. They are going to pull down this altar. No delay. Get busy. Go into action and pull down this altar. Now I don't know what you think or are thinking about the altar of Baal, but I've done some reading, you know, on some of the historians and everything, Alfred Edersheim, I don't know if you have uh, Alfred Edersheim's uh, uh, book on the Old Testament history, but he's one of the Jewish historian, one of the very best. And Alfred Edersheim points out that uh, if we're thinking of an altar as some little uh, rather insignificant uh, work of craftsmanship over here, then we're missing the point totally. Because as pagan worship was then, you'll see that pagan worship is now. For example, uh, I've been to Montreal where, you know, in the area where Brother uh, Stevens uh, labored up there and, and, so, and, the, and the church and the people up there. And I got a tour of Montreal. And so one of the places we went was the St. Joseph Oratory. And uh, the man that took me on the trip Pointed out how that this, where this oratory is located. Well, you, you, you can be in any number of places around Montreal and point out up on this high place and on this hill, you can see the largest Roman Catholic oratory on the North American continent. And there sets St. Joseph's Oratory. It's massive, it's incredible. And they put it in high places. This is always the way of the pagans. And some of you may say, Do you know you're talking about Roman Catholics? I know. It's the way of the pagans. And the way of the pagans and idol worship and all of that is always to give uh, special attention to the high places where people can see. For example, if you went to the city of Ephesus in the days, or you could go there now and see the ruins of it, and you'd see the temple of Diana. And it too was so that anywhere you were in Ephesus, the, the occupants of the city could look up and see the temple to Diana. And so if you wonder what is going here on this uh, uh, altar that is built, it was an altar that was built on a high place uh, so that everybody could have attention to Baal worship and have attention to it. They'd be reminded of it through the day that there it is in this high place and there would be this altar. And from what I understand about uh, several of the historians is that this would have been a massive structure. You know, not, not something maybe the size of this pulpit or twice as big or something like that, but it you know, would have been a major work of craftsmanship, and there it was. And it was obvious uh, when you look here that it was a common practice for the people uh, to, that were into Baal worship that they would go out in the morning and look up to the place where the altar of Baal was. Why? Oh, that's the way the pagan worship was. And so they would go out and check it out. Now, come on, put your imagination in gear and picture this guy going out. He's got his cup of coffee in his hand and it's early in the morning and it's just good and light. And he walks out to look up where he always does at the altar of Baal. And when he looks up, there ain't no altar of Baal. It's gone. It's not there. In fact, there's another altar, it wouldn't be as much in size, but far more meaningful, somebody help me. And not as much in size, but there's another altar there, and there is smoke coming up from that altar. And just immediately you would say, "What, what, what, what happened to the Baal worship? And what happened was, Gideon got these men together. He tied that rope, or however they did it, to this oxen, and they began to pull the thing down and brought it to utter destruction during that night. So they had to tear it down. They had to bring down the altar of Baal, and then they had to cut down the grove. Now, if you wonder, what is the grove about? Well, what do you think of when you hear the word grove? trees? Sure. Well, that's what it is. And some of them would be live standing trees. And in the grove, some of them would be carved uh, wood, standing like posts with all these figures on them. And uh, idolatry. This is typical idol stuff. And so it would have been some of the standing trees and some of these things. And somebody said, well, what is the grove about? Ah, interesting thing. To them, see, the altar represented the male god Baal. And to them, the groves and then the craftsmanship on those, uh, trees that were standing there as stumps with all the art, pagan artwork on it to their gods, that represents the female Ashtoreth. And so what you have to understand, what we have to understand is that Baal was the male god and his cohort was, uh, Ashtoreth and she was the female god, and she was the goddess of fertility and sexuality. And I don't want to be too explicit or even crude here today, but I'm just saying to you that gross immorality was the way and a part of their worship of Baal and Ashtareth. That they were granted by these idol gods which, my friend, existed only in their imaginations. There's no reality to them. I'm sure you know that already. But let's make that clear that they are not actually deities that exist except in their imagination, and they pacified their own conscience by their very immoral and perverse sexual behavior because this is the way that you worship Baal, and this is the way that you worship Asherah, and here are the people of God participating in that kind of worship. And so Gideon goes out there at the behest of God, and he takes the oxen like he was told, and he pulls it down and destroys it. Then he builds another altar that is there, and he offers it to the Lord. Now, let's think about that for just a moment. He cut down the altar, he brought it down, and then he brought down the grove. The whole point is this. Baal worship has no place in their lives, I mean, we can go to the words of the Apostle Paul. It's not like this is a problem that went away by New Testament times because Corinth, a city given over to idolatry of the same sort and a very, very immoral city. If you had the chance to live in San Francisco or Corinth, I'd almost guess you'd choose San Francisco. I'm serious. That's how bad it was. Just the utter corruption, the vileness, and the wickedness that was there. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote, and he said to the saints of all people, he said to the saints, for what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what fellowship is there between idolatry or idols and God? Well, there can be no fellowship there. There can be no concord there. It doesn't exist. And so what we understand here is that uh, uh, Gideon is commanded to pull this idolatry down to destroy it. And so they look up and it's not there. And beside it, uh, somewhere right there is another altar that was built by Gideon. And it offered this second bullock upon that altar. See, it's not just enough to get rid of the bad. It's very important to include what's good. I said, it's not just enough to clean house on the idolatry and move on. Uh -uh. It's important to build the altar to the Lord and make sure that we are in the place of the idolatry giving genuine and true worship to Jehovah God. And, And that's why in our preaching, we try to make it clear, at least I do, and I know your pastor does, we try to make it clear that it's not enough just to put the bad stuff out of your life. It matters what you put into your life. And we were having a visit today that just kind of happened as we were having lunch, and a gentleman came by. And I'm not, I'm not being ugly about it. I'm thankful we had a good time with him. But the gentleman said, I've got three grown kids. And he said, uh, I'm just so happy and thankful about it because my kids, my one son does this, and, and he's retired, and he's got a kind of a second retirement coming and so forth. And then he said, I've got another son that does this, and he's been very prosperous and successful. And so I'm just glad that all of my sons grew up to work and to be responsible and to do well in their occupations. He said, I'm so proud of that. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, that's good. I mean, America could use a lot of people like that. Somebody help me. We we could use a whole lot of people like that that would accept responsibility and actually work and make a living and be decent citizens and decent people. We could use that. But the real issue is not, where the, is not, how are they doing financially or how have they done their career? The real issue is this. Are they going to heaven or hell? Does their life count for Jesus or not count for Jesus? Now, that's what we're talking about here. So they could get rid of the altar, but God is showing us a picture here to say it's not just enough to clear some of the trash or some of the junk out of the life. Some of you might be thinking right now of the story that Jesus told about the man that had a demon. And he swept his house, which means his life, he swept his house clean. And that demon left. But because he didn't replace it with fellowship with God, seven demons, worse than the first, came in and possessed him. Does everybody get it? That's kind of the kind of story we got here. It's not enough just to get rid of the worship of Baal. It's important that we implement genuine, authentic worship to God. And that's why he builds that altar. Something for saints to think about. It's something for saints to really think about. So you're not on drugs. Good. So you're not overtaken by some addiction. Good. That's wonderful. But they came to Jesus and said, Master, tell me, what is the first and great commandment? Jesus said the first and great commandment is that you're not a drunkard. Anybody remember reading that? Didn't quite say that, did it? The first and great commandment would be that you don't commit adultery or just go down the whole list of the Ten Commandments. That's not what he said. He said, the first and great commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And I found that there are a lot of people that are totally satisfied in their Christian life as they go to church and they go through the motion and, excuse me just a second, and they reflect back and say, well, at least I'm not doing what I used to do. And they look at their past life and they may have moved on from the awful sins of their past life, but the real issue is, do you love the Lord? Is he the object of your affection? Is he the object of your love? Come on, this is, a, this is not an insignificant issue. The first and great commandment is what? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. The second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus said. I'm going with that myself. That's what he expects. That's what he expects. And so God is teaching that very principle here. You tore down the altar of Baal. Good, it should have never been there to begin with. It it, it had no place in your life. You're under this oppression, and you're still worshiping Baal. Seven years, seven years of this oppression, and Baal worship is still valuable to you, and you're the covenant people of God? So he has Gideon tear it down. And then he has him build an altar. And offer a sacrifice there, which is to bend them to, uh, uh, again, authentic, real worship to the God who is. That's what he's working at there. Now, the second thing is this. If we're going to move on and be free from the oppression of a world system that God doesn't mean us to be controlled by. I mean, come on, we're not even tapping uh, hardly anything from the Old Testament that we could use here. Uh, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, because the world is Midian. Come on, please let me know you're with me here, or I could go back and repeat yesterday's sermons and then get back here tonight, so how do you want it? 8.30 or 10 o'clock? How do you want it? You know, so. So, but that's, that's, we haven't even hardly tapped that. But this Midianite system of oppression, that doesn't, that doesn't belong in that land, that covenant land, or upon this covenant people. So they've got to get rid of the worship, but when they get rid of the worship, here's the next thing. They've got to recognize who the enemy really is. Okay, so. Uh, look down at verse 28. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, beheld the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cast down, and was, that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon, uh, uh, the altar that was built. And they said one to another, you know, it's about time we get rid of that junk. Ideally, that's how it would have read. I said, ideally, somebody would have stepped up and said, uh, well, the prophet told us that the reason we've been living in the misery we've had the past seven years is because we haven't obeyed God. And certainly the altar of Baal has nothing to do with obedience to God, but the getting rid of it does. So we're on the right path here. Uh -uh, That's not where they were. No. No. Look in verse 29. Who hath done... you got to read it like they said it. Who hath done this thing? And then they began an investigation. And when they investigated, or they inquired, and they asked, and they sought around, gathered their information, they came to the conclusion that this was done by one of their own Baal worshippers' households. This is none other but Gideon, the son of Joash, he hath done this thing. And then the men of the city said unto Joash, uh, you would hope they'd be praising God that he had a son that had that kind of courage. But nope, nope. Nope, they haven't had enough of the oppression and the misery. And they said, when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash. Then the men of the city said unto Josh, bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. I'm saying to myself, are you kidding me? You were under this oppression for seven years? You're the one that cried out to God and got Him involved in this thing. Is everybody listening? You're the the ones that cried out to God. So the people of Israel cried out to God. You mean even those who were Baal worshippers? Well, it seems like Baal worshippers are pretty strong. And so, yes, even those that were Baal worshippers, they were under such oppression, could do nothing about it. What's Baal going to deliver them from this oppression? No, that's a part of the oppression. And so, God comes and He has a man that has the fortitude to obey God and do what he's supposed to do and pulls down the altar. And they come and say, Joyce, your son is the enemy. And if you protect him, you're the enemy. So they thought. You know what they're saying basically? Wait, 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 wait. We want out from under the oppression, but we don't really want to change anything. We, we don't want to change what we do. We've been doing we've been this bail worship quite a while. Oh, we still acknowledge God, Jehovah, our God, covenant made. Oh, yeah, sure you do. What was the first thing, first commandment of the Ten Commandments of Moses gave? I said, I oh, know the God's before me. What's the second? No graven images at all. No idolatry. And they're acting like this could be compatible with them and God. And basically their attitude is, I want help. I went out from under this oppression. I want economic prosperity back. I want it where I can grow a crop and reap the benefits of the crop. I want to have a vineyard and reap the benefits of the vineyard. I want to have herds and flocks and reap the benefits of herds and flocks. I really want that. Okay, here's how it works. Got to get rid of Baal. Well, now, wait, I didn't mean that. I don't want to change. Now, let me tell you why I kind of hesitate here. Maybe we need to just uh, camp here just a second, because I don't know how many times as a pastor I've sat with a married couple and you know, it's rocky, it's shaky and there's contention and there's strife and there's no joy and they're wondering if their marriage isn't going to make it. You take them to the word of God and say, here's what the Bible says and here's how you can have a happy marriage. Well, that's not my personality, says the wife. Or the husband says, she's stronger than I am. Mm -hmm. So, what do you want me to do? Save your marriage? Do more of the same thing? You'll get the same results. No, 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 we want our marriage to change. We just don't want to change. So you sit down with somebody and they're having extreme financial problems and they got all kinds of credit card debts and this kind of debt and they're living way over their head. They are not even able to possibly produce the kind of income uh, uh, to support the kind of lifestyle they really want to live. And you sit down with them and you start talking about them and not just about money management and the principles of money management. but First of all, let's talk about God. We, we really need Him involved in this thing. And the, Lord's, uh, the tithe belongs to the Lord. That was before the law. It was under the law. It's since the law. The tithe begins to the Lord. Now, now wait a minute. We, we want help with our finances, Brother Sam, but we can't give. In other words, we want out of this mess, but we don't want to change the way we are. Over and over and over. Yep. So there are people in an illicit relationship. And uh, they come under conviction about fornication or they come under conviction about idolatry. And what are we supposed to do? You're supposed to break this off completely. This is wicked. This is against God. And this is wrong. They might come to the altar, and then they might sit down and talk to the pastor, and they say, what you two need to do is break up. And we have a common thing in this uh, in our culture, as you well know, that really began and had got a catalyst in the 1960s in the free love movement and the hippie movement, where people just lived together apart from marriage, and now it's a plague in the United States of America. I said it is an actual plague, and you sit down with people, and their life is full of stress and guilt and misery, and you two need to break up, and you need to learn what it is to be obedient to God and then come together in a proper marriage. Oh, no, now we we can't do that. We can't even afford to live at two separate residents. We can't afford to do that. In other words, I want out from under the burden of guilt and oppression and shame and misery that's created in such a relationship. I went out from under that without changing. Don't let the silence bother you, Brother Sam. You're telling the truth. Okay, thank you very much. It's the truth. And it's amazing how many of the people of God that ought to know better want things to change. They want the joy. They want the peace. They want the happiness. They want the liberation. They want to be free. They want to have joy in their life, but they don't want to make any changes. They just want God to give it to them. In order for this to happen, there's some stuff that's got to be pulled down. What had to be pulled down here? The altar of Baal. What is it in your life that needs to be pulled down? See, there was a lot of, what was standing between them and affection to God was Baal. I said what was standing between them and devotion and affection to God, loving God like they should, what was standing between them and God was Baal. And as long as Baal was there, they would never be with God where they are supposed to be. So you got to pull down the altar of Baal, get rid of it completely. And I just wonder, even on a Monday night, so I prayed and thank God for people that will come out on a Monday night, and this is getting to be a more and more unusual thing, that people actually give attention uh, to the Word of God on an off night like this. It, it's getting more and more rare. But even amongst people like us, even amongst in my own life when I was a kid, going to revival meetings and wanting to go. I never thought my parents about going... I wanted to go to a revival meeting, but I didn't always want God to have His way in my life. Like He wants to have His way in my life. Well, I want God to have His way in my life. Are you willing to pull down some things that stand between you and sheer devotion to God? And it's not always immorality. Sometimes it's Career. Career. I'm really, I'm troubled and I'm concerned about how many young people raised up in places like this and Southwest Baptist Church, how many young people are choosing career paths that will take them out of church or the ability to be used effectively in church? That really bothers me. And the line of work itself is not wrong. I've said to young people, Before that, said, Well, what I'm going to do, I just ask them, So, what's ahead for you? You're a senior in high school. What do you got planned? Well, I'm going to go to this and this. And they tell me the career path that they're going to pursue. And it could have everything to do with the medical world or the law enforcement world and on and on. And I'm just going to tell you right now, as a pastor, I watched for 36 years and I've been doing this for 55 years. And I could tell you some of the careers that people chosen, I could count on one hand the number of people that are in that career and totally devoted to Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm devoted to Jesus, not, just not able to be in church like I am, but I'm devoted to Jesus. Can't separate it, friend. Thank you. You can't separate it. You can't separate it. If you said to me, Brother Sam, would you go out to eat with us tonight after church? And I said, well, let me check with my wife, see if she's up to it. Well, we don't want her to come. We just want you. What do you think I'm going to say? Oh, sure, okay, that's fine. (laughs) No, I'm going to say in the kindest of terms, look, bucko, if you don't like my wife, then I don't like you. So no, we're not going out with you tonight. But I would say it in a very Christian-like manner, of course. (laughs) And there are people that want to, excuse me, profess devotion to Jesus, but not His bride. You see a problem there? Well, it is a problem. According to the Word of God, it's a problem. Because the agency by which we serve the Lord and carry out the will of God in the purpose of propagation of the gospel, making disciples, exercising the ordinances, the agency that he has given is the New Testament church. Nobody's TV ministry, nobody's biggest shot ministry out here. No, it's the local church. Uh, An authentic New Testament Baptist church of any size, anywhere. That's how he carries on his work. And choose a career path that won't let you be in church. It sounds like there might be something between you and God that you may have to consider about pulling down. Well, it's what I've always wanted to do. You don't exist to do what you want to do. He didn't save you to fulfill your will, your goals, and your purposes. He saved you to fulfill His will and His purposes. See? And His glory. So what we do when we look at this is just say, well, we see what had to be torn down there. Now what i got to do is look at my life and say what stands between me and devotion to the Lord? Because whatever it is, it's got to be moved. It's got to be, in many cases, removed completely out of the picture. It could be a relationship. I said it could be a relationship. I was sharing, I think, at uh, lunch today. But 60 years ago, this November, 60 years ago, was when her family came to Calvary Baptist Church in our hometown. And uh, that was a great time. Because the youth department consisted of me and my little sister and my sister two years older than me and maybe Donnie Cantrell now and then and his wife, or his sister, rather, now and then. That's about it. And they weren't very dependable. So I had all kinds of issues with my sisters at home. And they're the youth department with me. Seriously, they brought most of the emotional scars of my life, came from those girls right there. (laughs) Now they're in the youth department. And her family came and joined, and this little sweet thing came walking into the youth department. And I remember after her family joined, was baptized, I remember her being up in the choir, and I was sitting about where you are right there. I was sitting right about there, maybe a row or two forward. And I was sitting there. I looked up at her, and there's about eight or nine people in the choir, and she's up there, and she's got her head kind of like this, and she's swing, singing along. And I look at her, and I think, my soul, look at that. I'm going to marry that girl right there. I did. I did. I didn't say, I'll marry that girl. No, it scared the daylights out of me. I wasn't seeking a wife or thinking about that. I had a car and a basketball and two pigs and several cows and some sheep that I was showing and stuff like that. I wasn't thinking about, i got to find, oh, God, give me the wife. No, I wasn't thinking that way at all. But there she was, came into my life. Man, oh, man, I told Brother Bill at lunch, I about lost my mind. My dad had to sit down and say, son, now, we love Sandy, too. My parents loved her to death from day one. And so my dad sat down and said, we love Sandy, too. But I'm just telling you, you're not doing your responsibility at your job. You're about to get fired uh, after school job. You're not doing your work at school, which wasn't that unusual. But anyway, and then he said, you're not doing the chores that I give you to do. You're messing up almost everything you touch. And it won't be long if you keep this up. You won't be going anywhere with her. I guarantee you that. And that pretty much got my attention. And and I mean, I, I lost it for a while. She doesn't remember that. I don't care if she remembers it or not. I remember it. And that's the way it was. And it wasn't her fault that my spiritual life went that way. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault I became an irresponsible person. I just never went experienced anything like this before. It just took control of my life. And we had to have a revival and had to have a youth camp and had to go to Silver State and get things set back in order and get, get things in line where they're supposed to be. It can happen in relationships. And just because you get bowled over doesn't mean it's the Lord's will. You can get bowled over with somebody and I'm not just talking about opposite sex relationships. I'm talking about friendships and, and fellowship from somebody at work or friendship from somebody at work and stuff like that that's going to be a drain on your spiritual life. And to maintain that kind of friendship or to maintain that that kind of relationship means that there's going to be a compromise with you and God along the way. And eventually you're going to have to decide, who's important here? I'm just saying, they tore it down and they tore it down because it was the affection to Baal that was standing between them and God. And whatever it is that's standing between you and devotion and affection to God is your Baal. And it needs to be removed. Well, I know, no, no I, I want God's blessing. You don't understand, Brother Sam. I want God's blessings and I want in favor. Yeah, they wanted to have them under the oppression, too. They wanted a land that flowed with milk and honey, not ran and flowed with Midianites and Amalekites. Is everybody listening? But they're not going to get that till they remove what stood between them and God. We need to make that very clear. It doesn't matter if it's money, it doesn't matter if it's career, it doesn't matter if it's relationships. It doesn't matter if it's a hobby. It doesn't matter if it's sports. It doesn't matter what it is. If it stands between us and devotion to God, it's got to go. It's got to go. Isn't that rather extreme? (laughs) Well, let's see. Let's borrow from Jesus here. Let me see if I can think of some words. If any man come after me, and be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen. If a man hate not father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children also, he cannot be my disciple. Read that to the average man on the street and see if they want to be a Christian. But that's what he said. I love this woman. We've been married 56 years. It's, it's a blessing. It's a wonderful. We kind of got in an argument after lunch there, but that's just a minor little thing there. I'm just trying to help her, and she didn't understand. But anyway, you weren't going to tell anybody. And so, I mean, this is the, this is the love of my life. Right here. But I'm not to love her more than I love God. And we love children. We love our three children. We have 11 grandchildren. We now have four. A week ago last night had our fourth great-grandchild born. They're precious. We love them. But they can't come between us or me and God. Whatever stands between you and God, we have the same problem they had. It's the Baal of our life. Oh, Baal is hideous. So anything is hideous that we put before God who is God. And if we don't think that way, it shows we have too low a view of God. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Yep. Okay, I've got to move on. If I've made that clear, I don't know if it's been clear. I hope so. Yeah, well, some of you just don't want it anymore. You don't know if it was or not. Okay. Let me see. Yeah, it could be music, movies, associations, all kinds of things. Now look at verse 31. Verse 31. And Joash said unto all that stood against him. Will you plead for Baal? Now, excuse me just a second. He wasn't a part of the pulling down of the altar. He wasn't a part of the building the right altar. Joash wasn't. So, he had to step up here. And I'm assuming from what I can get out of the passage, this wasn't just a dad loyal to his son. I think he had the picture that his son did the right thing. But look at it, verse 31. Joy said unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? You mean you guys are coming out here to make an appeal for your God, Baal? Will you say, Does he need you to save him? Will you save him? He that will plead for Baal, for him, let him be put to death while he's yet mourning. You're going to stand up for Baal because Baal can't defend himself. You're the one that ought to die. (laughs) Well, it's quite a turnaround for dad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's quite a turnaround. If he be a god, this is a good point, if he be a god, let him plead for himself because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called him Jeroboam and stood by him saying, let Baal plead against him because he hath thrown down his altar. If Baal doesn't like what my son has done, then let him present the case against him. And basically what he is saying is that what is, well, listen to this, what is standing between you and devotion to Jehovah God has no power to do anything for you or to be any kind of blessing to you. And they can't even defend themselves. If Baal is really God, let him defend himself. And, and he may, I, I mean, it just brought to my mind how that a little later on it'll come up that the Philistines went through this thing. And they had the Ark of the Covenant of God. Remember that? And they took the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they, they were so proud of it, they put the Ark of the Covenant of God in the house of their God, Dagon. And, and of course, who's, who's got the greatest God here? Well, the Philistines would have said, that's a duh question. Well, obviously we have the great God, because we have the Ark of the Covenant of their God in the house of our God in our possession. There you go. Oh, they were happy and they danced all night and had a party and just no guy got drunk and crazy and everything else. And they went into the house of Dagon the next day. Whoops. Dagon's laying down on the floor. What is going on here? Get some boys in here. They get him in, set him back up, put the plaster all down there, shake him, let it dry good, shake him. Yep, looks like he's good. Then bow down and worship him. Real stuff. This is how they work. So then they go and say i don 't know what that was about, but anyway, we got that taken care of he' ain't going down again. Well, they went in this day and he 's down again, and his head's over here, and his arms are over here, and there lies the bust of him, busted you know i mean it 's just it 's all done it 's right there, and so you know what you know what that is that 's God defending himself God is He that cometh to God must believe that He is. That's where a lot of people need to go back and start. Do you really understand that God is? He's not a figment of the imagination. He is not something that's a part of a big, huge fairy tale. No, sir. He is the true and the living God. And He knows how to vindicate Himself. And human history spells that out very clearly. As well as the pages of the Bible. That God is able to defend Himself. Now, if Baal is God, let him defend himself. It's amazing to me, and I've watched this over and over and over, not just with church people, but with family members and on and on. They go their merry way. They think that I and people like me are a bunch of fanatics and nutcases, and yet when the chips are down and when their back is to the wall, can somebody help me? Sam, would you pray for me? Can we talk to each other? All of a sudden they have an interest in what the Bible says and what God might be able to do. Can we read something out of Psalms? I know that Psalms. Has a lot. Of, can we read something out of and read something out of Psalms, and then turn right back to the stuff that got them in the mess they were in? There may be somebody sitting here tonight too cool to get serious for God. Let these bunch of fanatics and that wild preacher let the, they can do that. But I mean, I've got other things in my life that are far more important to me, and I'm moving in another direction. I've taken another path. Yeah. Better watch it, smart guy. You may not be quite as cool as you think you are. God is. And if He saved you and you're His child, you think He's just going to say, oh, well, let him go? No, that's not how God deals with His children. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. Here's another level. And scourgeth every son that he receiveth. Mm -hmm. You sure? You 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 sure you want to live above total be? I'm I'm sorry. Outside total surrender to God. You sure you want a life apart from that? And what you choose, what's it going to do for you in the day of trouble? This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Uh, I don't know but what they're here. What do you think? I used to say, Brother Bill, there are signs on the horizon. There are signs out here on the horizon that indicate that we may not know the America that we've always known, that things may change, and that Christians may not always have the freedoms. And and now, uh, just about that quick, I just dropped the part on the horizon. Looks like they're on us. Looks like they're here. Looks like they're upon us. And a long time ago, I learned we're not looking for signs of the coming of Jesus Christ. We're not looking for signs, you know, just to make a little ditty out of it. We're not looking for the signs. We're looking for the Savior. We're way beyond looking for signs of His coming, like preachers used to preach about all the time and take stacks of newspaper articles and World Magazine articles and stuff like that and say, here are some more signs of the times, here's what's happening here and there around the world, and here's what the uh, Council on Foreign Relations is doing, and here's what's going on in Russia and China, and on and on, and now we got all that information right before us, you don't have to take stacks of it, people can look it up while you're preaching and see if you're telling right or not, is everybody- listen to this? And I mean, there's just all kinds of indication that Jesus is coming. Let me ask you something. You're hooked on that country music or some other kind of music that is truly anti-God? Plants no good thoughts in the mind? Glorifies sin to the hilt? What's that music going to do for you? in these last days. Now, I'm not going to that church up there. I mean, I, I don't mind going to church good people and everything. The preacher up there, he'll preach a good message and stuff. But, you know, they are actually against a man drinking beer. I'll tell you one thing. You're not taking my beer from me. Yeah, well, maybe I'll do like Oliver B. Green. If you don't anything to do with the house of God, you want to drink your beer, you know what Oliver Oliver Green said? I hope when you die they don't take you to a church and let some sweet Christian lady sing over you. I hope they take you down to the bar, hang up a bunch of Budweiser bottles and cans, and let some prostitute or some barmaid sing over your dead carcass. (laughs) (laughs) Oliver B. Green. (laughs) How many of you never heard of Oliver B. Green? Really? Oh, my soul. Yeah. Wonderful servant of God. I got all these commentaries, you know, and stuff like that. And he's real wordy. I mean, he could, you could see it. Well, who am I? But anyway, <laughs> but he's, yeah, dear old servant of God. Somebody said that sounds real mean. Well, what do you want him to do? Go right around, and pat everybody on the head that chooses beer and bar joints over God who has little children? Why, aren't, why are you mad at Oliver Reed Green? Why aren't you mad at the daddy that's down there drinking beer when yeah. he knows he ought to be in the house of God, and he can't even buy shoes for his children? Yeah. Yeah. See, you got to know who the enemy is. And they came and said, "You, you, you, you come out. You get your son down here. We're going to die." They didn't know who the enemy was. This preacher can stand up here in this church and I guarantee you through the process of time if you're faithful to the preaching of the Word of God you're going to have to address the real issues of personal sanctification. You know what I mean by that? Personal. We are set apart unto God. We are set apart from the world and unto God. And there are matters of personal sanctification that if we are not uh, careful and exercise them then they stand between us and being right with God. And the preacher might get up and get real specific about matters of personal personal sanctification and personal holiness, somebody go out the door and get mad at him. That's like them saying, get that boy out here. Dude, you've been, you've been under oppression seven years. You're the ones that cried out and said, get us out of this mess and cried to the Lord. And now as God goes into action, sends you a Gideon, and you think he's the enemy there are some of you that may get miserable in this life and know that I may have made money, I may have made progress, I may be a good businessman, I may have this, I may have that, I may have the dream house, I may have the car I always do, I may have this and this and this and this and another thing, but something deep down is missing. And when the preacher gets up and preaches the Word of God and tells you how to get it, you think he's the nut. Know who the enemy is. I can just tell you right now, I've had people defend and mock and laugh. And Garth Brooks is their hero. He's the one that provides their music. Garth Brooks. You, know, you call him when you're lying on the hospital bed about to have a, a cancer surgery. You call Garth. He'll help you out. And if not, put his music on. That'll do you a lot of good. Okay, I'll try not to be so sarcastic. But, it, but for real, friend. For real. Yeah. So this is a part of it. So let's just kind of pause, and I'll quit. Let's just kind of pause and ask ourselves: Do we really know who the enemy is? Let's just pause and ask ourselves: Is there anything that stands between me and my devotion to God? Am I expecting God to bless my life, give me meaning, give me fulfillment? But still, I want to maintain control and get what I want, and do what I want to do. I want to do this my you know, I mean I want God in my life. Don't misunderstand me, Brother Sam. I really want God in my life. Oh yes, I do. I just don't want to change the way I am. I want Him to give me joy being me. I've got to be me. Somebody ought to write a song about that sometime. <laughs> I've got to be me. Oh great. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Lord, just help us now. I'm not able to judge and know who is where. I'm a guest here. My wife and I have been so well received once again at Riverside Baptist Church. and We love the fellowship of the saints here and the pastor and his wife. and, And so God, you know who's here. And if I didn't, believe that this is where we were supposed to be in a preaching series this week, I'd have been happy to preach somewhere else on other matters, other passages. Your Word is so rich and full, there's preaching everywhere. But it seemed, O God, that it was within Your will that we be here in this account. To come on a Monday night and confront people about Baal in their life? Isn't that a little over the top? It might seem so to us, but you know the hearts of men. I just read in my Bible reading this morning that Jesus didn't commit himself to those people because he knew them. And he knew what was in them. He needed not that any should testify to him of man because he knew all men and what was in them and you still do. So Lord, you know what's going on in hearts and lives here tonight. You know those that have felt the tug of the conviction of the Holy Spirit to get right but they just don't want to give up that little bale stuff in their life that stands between you and them. Sure, it's entirely possible on a Monday night. There are men and or women here that your Holy Ghost has tugged at their heart and their response is, I want God's favor and blessings, but I can't give up that. I don't want to change that. But it's standing between you and your devotion to the Lord. But, but, but can't I have both? Your word is too clear for us to make compromises that way. I pray that you would work in hearts. If there's somebody here that knows, my deal is I'm not saved. I pretend that I am. Other people think I am. But I know I'm not saved. If there's somebody here that in fact needs to be saved, I pray they'd humble their heart and call upon Jesus to be their Savior. I pray, Lord, if there are saints in this room that know I cannot afford to play this game with God. I know that. I'm just struggling with whether I want this or that to change in my life. I'd rather have the favor of God and still do what I want to do in this area, that area, or another area. Maybe I need to even mention tonight. God, I pray you to help him to see clearly out of this account. There's no middle road here. There's no middle ground. There's no middle of the road space here. We're either going to get right with you, or we're going to say, well, I want favor from God, but I want to do it my way. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. And where there needs to be reviving, may there be reviving. Might you work in this invitation according to your will? I have no plans to manipulate, coerce anybody to do anything. But if your Holy Ghost can't get it done, then I don't have anything else to say. But if your Holy Ghost is at work in that heart, in that life, in that man, that woman, that young adult, that teenager, that boy or girl, I remember sitting in services and how you dealt with my heart as a kid. Oh, God, I pray there be no resistance to your bidding, your will, your calling in this invitation time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Have a verse of invitation. If the Spirit of God's tugged at your heart, you know, if I did the right thing, if I did what I know that I'll be glad I did when I put the head on the pillow tonight, I would go down to that altar and I'd talk to God and answer Him about how He's talked to me. That's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. I can do that where I am in this auditorium. You can, will you? Will you? Or would it be right just to come and say, I need to separate myself and humble myself before God right now. The invitation is on. Nothing between my Lord and the Savior.